stories that live with you for a long time, longer than it will take to tell them. Stories that occupy a space between imagination and research. Stories that motivate you to make, to share, to ask questions. Stories that want to be told, that entice you, that linger. When you encounter such a story, there is a rush inside which pulses away at the spider webs of procrastination. You hold it with you like a little treasure, and every fleck on its surface calls you back in, holds you into its power, shelters you from indifference. After all, writing and art are a fight against that. A fight against silence, against disdain, against time, against history. Writing and art, at least for me, are where we hold our humanity. Mark Doty, in his book Still Life of Oysters and Lemon, shared this heartbeat with the namesake painting. He fell in love with it, he says. I too have been known to do such a thing. But instead of one painting, today we talk about many, many more. We talk about art, about history, about cruelty, about restitution. Today, we will be talking about a man whose story has been with me since I first heard it, on that walk through Falmouth Cemetery with Tony Casey over two years ago. Today, finally, we tell the story of Jack Hausticker, a Dutch-Jewish art dealer who found himself in Falmouth on his way to safety whilst escaping the Nazi invasion of Holland. Today, we share a last few thoughts about Falmouth and his cemetery, and today, wonderfully, we hear from one of Jack's descendants. My name is Sherezade Garcia Rangel, and I ask you to come with me on the last episode of Season 1 of On the Hill. On a sunny day in April, I went to visit Jack's grave. Jack's Gaussticker's grave is located at the bottom of the old Famous Cemetery, overlooking the Swampo Lagoon. It's a simple grave, a slab of stone, with a few details to mark who's there. It's located in a beautiful spot. You can see almost all of the Swampo Lagoon from here. And the sun shines on it every day. The gravestone says Jacques Hausticker, born in Amsterdam, 30th of August, 1897, died on high sea, 16th of May, 1940. Jack Hansdicker was born in Amsterdam on the 30th of August 1897. His father Edward and his grandfather were established art dealers, and the Gaussdicker business had been founded 50 years before Jack was born, in 1847. Jack's received an education in the commercial school in Amsterdam, and this was later expanded in depth by William Vogelsang in Utrecht and by art dealer and specialist on the Dolch Golden Age, 
Wilhelm Martin at the University of Leiden. When Jacques began to work in his family's business, Holland was a place of high contrast between a growing affluence which benefited some liberal initiatives and the effects of the 1929 Great Depression, which were felt keenly in the country. The interwar period thus provided for growing internal tensions, with located social unrest and a general feeling that the rising concerns from the north in Germany would not affect the Netherlands. During this time, an educated, intelligent and visionary Jax began to carry out a few changes within the Gaussticker art dealership. He expanded the business and the collection with a more international perspective, which would go on to include Italian, French and other European art. In 1933, he organized a Rubens exhibit and a year later, he contributed to putting together an exhibition called Italian Painters in Dutch Collections, which was visited in the opening night by Queen Wilhelmina. He designed and published catalogues for the Gaussticker collection in French, and these publications are still available today if you look for them. They are beautifully crafted, carefully made catalogues that show the range of the Gaussticker collection. The catalogues that he produced, those yes. were those were beautiful and sort of ahead of the time. People weren't producing those kind of catalogues um, internationally and He also had exhibitions that museums had failed to do. And he, I think, was on a mission to pioneer <laughs> in yeah. a you know, new direction. And, and he, he did. He had amazing exhibitions. And he even uh, brought, brought some of them to life with those tableau vivants. You know, he would, bring, mm -hmm. he would bring the paintings to life with actual characters definitely took it to another level. And I mean, I know he was known for mostly Dutch and Flemish art, but he did also collect some Italian and some German and even at the time, some, some modern art, which I think everyone was surprised by. Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to talk to Charlene von Sayer, Jack's granddaughter. There is much she and her family have done to restore Jack's and his work. And in this episode, we will find out more. In the meantime, let's continue to look at Amsterdam and Holland before World War II. Everyone has someone that they're fond of. It seems to me, Bane, that you're no exception to the rule. I'm not doing bad. Yes, but have you originality? No. In your congeniality? No, when I say we're happy, I don't fool God. In the interwar period, Jack continued to acquire, exhibit, and sell art. For the purpose of entertaining and displaying the growing collection, he buys Nienroda Castle, which was originally built in 1260 by Knight Gerard Splinter van Ruwiel and later rebuilt and modernized in the 17th century by Bernard van den Bongard III, who included a moat and a drawing bridge to the picturesque Nile Mansion. It is here, in a legendary party he hosted, that he meets Desi. Um, I wonder if, if you could take us back to to the party in in the castle where they meet. Where yes. And the semi. It seemed yeah. like an event of the year. Yeah, it really, I think it really was. So 
my grandfather had organized this party called Vienna on the Vecht, on the Vecht mm-hmm. River. Yeah. And he, it was, it was a, a charity party. Um, I think the tickets were going at the time, which is crazy. We're going for like $650. Um, but the, the guests could choose which charity they wanted their money to go to. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them went to Jewish refugees. Um, oh, but at this party at my grandfather's castle, Nine Rota in Brooklyn, he invited Daisy, who was a young singer in Vienna at the time. Mm. And um, she arrived in Amsterdam and he put her up at the Amstel Hotel and mm. had left these beautiful little antique bud vases with, with orchids in them. <laughs> And it really, I think it, it was just, uh, you know, it was kind of a love at first sight thing. So that evening, um, you know, my grandmother was on stage and I think my grandfather was smitten and that was kind of it. <laughs> she it seems she, to be like really orchestrating a wonderful moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It All was, it was incredible. There. I think he knew what he wanted and she, <laughs> she went back to Vienna Um, and he then later sent a telegram to her and it was delivered by somebody that he hired (laughs) and, and it said, you know, you better learn Dutch (laughs) (laughs) and ultimately, yeah. And ultimately, you know, she packed her bags and she, she moved there and (laughs) really shortly after they, they were married, um, and honeymooned in Egypt. And then my father was born. And so it was all, it's all like very romantic and like this big fantasy world. And then the Nazis invaded. So it was very short lived, which is, you know, it's kind of always ironic to me because I I had a wonderful relationship with Daisy, with my grandmother, Mm. um, because she, she only passed away when I was 21. So I have, you know, many years to share with her. Um, she always spoke to me about my grandfather, oh. about Jacques, you know, and she was only married to him for a very short time. She remarried several years later mm-hmm. and was married to her second husband for many years, but she never really spoke about him. She only <laughs> spoke about Jacques, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. That, that beautiful kind of, wonderful glamorous life that yeah but short and and true love I think they just really yeah you know it was like a love story Tessin von Halben and Jack Haustiger marry in 1937 after the honeymoon in Egypt and their establishment in their joy and happiness in Ostermeer their son Edo is born unavoidably aware of how the tensions in Germany might make them a target Jack begins to take precautions before the war, my grandfather had sent some paintings to London. Mm-hmm. And then after the war, my grandmother had sent for those to be shipped to the United States. Um, and they were torpedoed. So she never got those. Wow. Um, yeah, there's so many like little stories along the way. And each one could be its own novel. Its own novel, exactly. <laughs> so we'll never know, you know, about that group of paintings. The build to World War II happened across a few years, but in November 1938, the organized anti-Semitic feeling reached a boiling point. 
over the course of a horrifying night, Jewish-owned stores, hospitals, buildings, schools, houses, and synagogues were targeted by civilians and by the Storm Detachment, the Nazi Party's paramilitary wing. Kristallnacht, as it would be called, marked one of the darkest events leading up to World War II, where tens of thousands of Jews were sent to concentration camps and over 260 synagogues and 7,000 Jewish businesses were attacked across Germany. This didn't happen in isolation, these things never do. The anti-Semitic and the anti-Romani feeling in Germany and in Europe had been nurtured and pondered to for years. The how, the infamous concentration camp, was built five years earlier in 1933, serving as the blueprint for the other camps. Built as a prison for the enemies of the Reich, it was already in operation six years before the war even started, before the invasion of Poland in 1939, before Churchill arrived at 10 Downing Street in May 1940, before Pearl Harbor in December 1941, The hatred was built law by law and action by action. In the Aberdeen Press and Journal on November 11, 1938, a lengthy article describes the events that took place in Kristallnacht. Here's a fragment of it, and I quote, Amazing reports of outrages on an unparalleled scale pour in from all parts of Germany. This included the burning of synagogues, demolition of Jewish stores, plundering of private property, and the arrest of thousands of Jews. It was stated last night on good authority that punitive measures by the legislation, foreshadowed by Dr. Goebbels, would depend to a large extent on foreign reaction to yesterday's disorders. It was indicated that, if the reception abroad were extremely unfavorable, the anti-Jewish measures would be correspondingly severe. End quote. The Nazi government was keeping an eye out for international reaction. A meeting after this event would begin to discuss the plan for the events that unfolded across the next few years. Historians consider Kristallnacht the prelude of the Holocaust. Years later, sitting in the defendants' benches at the Nuremberg trials, most of the Nazi government's remaining elite would claim that they didn't know what was going on, would deny it. This trial was built on witnesses' accounts and multiple documents which compiled the facts of atrocity. It was through documents, and who signed them, that these crimes against humanity were brought to some level of justice. Documents are often how we know something happened, how we can trace it back, how we can make connections, find links, follow a trail. That's why archives are so important. Without them, there would be no work for us here at On the Hill. We get to know Famos' cemetery story and its departed by immersing ourselves in them. But how do you know, out of all of your documents, which ones would be left behind? How do you know which ones will be read by others, taken further by others, be the means by which others claim some sort of justice back? 
Back in Holland, among his careful preparation, with an attention to detail that shines through everything he had done, Jack's house sticker compiled a small, leather-bound black book with a list meticulously recorded of all the paintings and artwork in the Gaussticker collection. He would keep this record close with him, on him. And it is this record, another of his companions as he prepared for a war most of Europe was dreading, that would be the means of how justice would come in different lengthy ways for Jack Haustick. Without the Black Book, I really don't know if we would have been able to get as far as we have in terms of restituting my grandfather's collection. It would have been really so much more difficult to which, you know, pieces were part of the collection. I mean, it was already difficult with that. So I can't even imagine what families, you know, that are in sim similar situations, what mm -hmm. they've done in order to recover paintings without, you know, proof of an inventory. Um, so, yeah, so the Black Book definitely was a key for us. And it's um, in the National Archives in in Amsterdam and it's being kept, you know, in, in good mm -hmm. condition there. I've seen some pages. Yeah. It's incredible to see Rembrandt written down very casually. I know. <laughs> like, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Vermeer, Rembrandt, Jan Steen. <laughs> right, I also so. noted that, that it was very meticulously laid out, which seems to have been something. He seems someone very attentive to detail. Very. Um, very meticulously. So... Is that correct? Am I? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think everything he did, he did, you know, a thousand percent. He, he never let any details go by him. In this episode, we follow his journey and this black book. But before we learn more about him, let's take a look at funds leading up to the active involvement of Britain in World War II. As the tensions mounting in Europe would soon lead to war, the pace of life in the seaside town of Falmouth continued to bring change and new commodities. The newspapers of the time, amidst discussion of the movements of the government and the events across the channel, dutifully record what was life like for the Falmouthians. Tribute to Town's Lighting Mr. Jenkins said that during the previous weekend he was at Llandudno, and the lighting of Falmouth compared very favourably with that resort which was more of a holiday town. He could not say the lighting in the Welsh town was to any great extent, except for some fancy touches here and there, better than that of Falmouth. That being so, he considered the town council had done a jolly good job to provide such excellent lamps. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, 25th of August, 1939. Since the mid-19th century, Falmouth had been updating the living conditions of the inhabitants of the town and parish. All along this time, the identity of the town changes and gets redefined. With economic improvements, more options arrived, and Falmouth's location continued to bring opportunity for the growing town, always blessed for its strategic position and its deep bay. But what should the town be, and what things would be considered improvements, wasn't always agreed upon. We have recorded how the location of the cemetery wasn't a certainty, even after the plot of land was being used for burial. 
Many things which we take for granted and might be grateful for, never much thinking how they came to be or who in the past we owe them to, might at one time have been in contention. It's perhaps hard how to imagine now what Falmouth seafront would be in the dark, with a river and the sea always present. A little light around the coast to guide our path might seem obvious and necessary. At one time, though, not everyone thought so. Lighting of Seafront To the editor of the Falmouth Packet As has been pointed out, Falmouth is unique in its setting and in the attractiveness of its natural surroundings. Any attempt to add to these by the introduction of the meretricious methods adopted by the so-called popular seaside resorts must undoubtedly tend to destroy the unrivaled position which our town holds in the affections of so many people. H. W. Gee, 2 Grove Hill House, Falmouth, published in the Lakes Falmouth Packet, 1st of September, 1939. Around the same time, an ad announces the return of Palmy's Madame Zelda, famous and certified, the renowned London scientist who is a help to mothers and must be booked early to avoid disappointment. Madame Zelda would arrive in Falmouth for two weeks, would be available in 36 Killingdrew Street, and would arrive on September 4th, 1939. But a bigger announcement arrived from town a day earlier, at 11.15 hours. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. The invasion of Poland had taken place and for the next few months discussions, preparations, deployments and strategies would be drawn up for one of those events which changed the world. Life in Falmouth and in much of the UK continued on. It would be months before Falmouth underwent its first air raid, but inevitably the war had begun to seep into the everyday for those in Cornwall. Recommendations for how to behave during the blackout were a common feature on the newspapers and royal visits, such as the Duke of Kent in Falmouth in February 1940 for a tour of the ships and docks, were in the itinerary. And the more places Germany invaded, the closer the conflict got. After failing at preventing Norway from falling into German control, the British government rapidly found itself in an untenable position. We are in May now, of 1940, closer and closer to the week that changed the world. On the 8th of May, Chamberlain loses his government majority and the support of a great number of his MPs, from 200 to 81 votes. Engaged in an open conflict, the government had no time to lose, and with Germany unresponsive to ultimatums, any delay at securing a stable government would be paid in great loss of life. Many discussions and meetings take place. It is agreed that the government must count with the support of all parties. It is known that Chamberlain's candidate was a peer, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, 
The result of these strategic meetings and discussions is also known. Secret. To be kept under lock and key. It is requested that special care may be taken to ensure the secrecy of this document. The War Cabinet was given the information which had been received since the first news at 5.30am that the Germans had invaded Holland. Parachute troops had been dropped between Leiden and The Hague and in the Rotterdam area. The Luxembourg frontier had been crossed by German troops. The Germans were said to have dropped bombs on Nancy, and two of our aerodromes in northern France had been bombed but missed. One bomb was said to have fallen in Brussels. Conclusions of a meeting of the War Cabinet held at 10 Downing Street, SW1, on Friday, May 10th, 1940, at 8 a.m. War Cabinet Minutes 117.40 Within two days of Chamberlain's loss, Germany would have invaded the formerly neutral Holland and its neighboring Belgium. In the afternoon, on the 10th of May, as battle displaced millions of people in the continent, after receiving news that the Labour Party was prepared to share their responsibility as a full partner of a new government under a new prime minister, Chamberlain arranged to meet the king and offer his resignation. He would be the one naming the man himself on that meeting. Winston Churchill is known to have written that he felt as if he were walking with destiny and that all his past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. We wonder how many of us know our call has arrived. On the other side of the channel, Jack Housesticker was mobilizing his young family under a different call, one of an escape to safety, away from the forces that were ready to deprive them of more than that. Let's take one last look this season at the history of Famous Cemetery before we return to the story of Jack Housesticker. Across the years, Falmouth Cemetery has continued to expand from the old cemetery at the top of the hill down towards Swampool and to the other side of the road where the modern cemetery stands. The old cemetery is a favorite place for locals. You often find dog walkers, artists and organized guided walks which summon the history of the town to the curious. On the other side of town, the ancient churchyard, which now looks mostly like a green space, used to pull attention, even as mourners became rare. In 1940, as the tensions across the world grew, some found themselves drawn to this place. Cemeteries and churchyards are liminal spaces, and sometimes those borders become thinner. Superstition. During the past fortnight, crowds of children and grown-up people have assembled night after night in the parish churchyard to see a ghost who had manifested himself to a favoured few and, it is stated, greatly frightened a young girl. The churchyard had just been put in very decent order, but will soon become dilapidated again unless such gatherings can be stopped. The police are on the lookout to discover what the apparition is and who is the practical joker. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 17th of May, 1940. Later, the apparition would be discovered to be indeed a prankster, and the churchyard was spared further damage. Around the same time, a revision of the cost of the upkeep of Falmouth Cemetery was happening, and with it, the calculation of how much longer the available space in the current cemetery would last. 
The Cemetery The borough treasurer reported that the burial fees for the month of April amounted to £54, 16 shillings and sixpence, and that the borough surveyor had paid wages amounting to £53, 12 shillings and sevenpence. The surveyor reported that in his opinion, there was sufficient ground in the cemetery to meet the requirements for the next ten years based on the average interments during the past five years. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, 17th of May, 1940. In time, the town purchased the final slot between the cemetery and the road across Swampu Lagoon. In this area, you can find the most recent graves on the old cemetery, including that of Jack Hausticker. Eventually, the land to the west would become the main cemetery, but the old still stands. Families still come to pay homage, and many, many stories are still there waiting to be told. of me when you are all alone. In May 1940, the news of the escalation of violence in the continent reached the public in the UK, who were immediately asked to undertake precautions. A preliminary announcement had already been issued stating that gas masks should be carried by the civil population who should make themselves acquainted with the nearest shelters. Householders should overhaul their ARP arrangements. A further set of announcements had been prepared dealing with such matters as the lighting restrictions and warnings about the unnecessary use of telephone and telegraph communications. BBC announcements regarding ARP measures, War Cabinet Minutes 118.40. Whit Monday was coming up, and with it a public holiday. The government called it off, asking instead that everyone, and I quote, should urge to ban all their energies to increasing war production, end quote. But this announcement came with too short notice, and Falmouth Town didn't quite know how or when to follow these instructions. Falmouth seems to have provided an exception in its reaction to the carry-on direction. Other towns in Cornwall regarded both the spirit and the letter of the government's wishes, though their zealousness receded from high water soon after midday. Falmouth, cool in summer and warm in winter, was lukewarm when it comes to abandoning a day off. While some shops opened, others remained closed, and perhaps those which opened might, for all the business that was done, have kept their shutters up or their blinds down, as the case might be. But the proprietors, at any rate, had the satisfaction of knowing they were doing the right thing. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, 17th of May, 1940. It seems that the weather had been lovely that Monday, but the war couldn't be pushed aside any longer, and the town was beginning to acknowledge the effect of these growing changes. Those who made holiday must have found it difficult, if not impossible, to capture the spirit essential to real enjoyment. With nature at its loveliest and weather as flawless as the sky, one could not forget that over there, death was being rained from the skies and the countryside, with its occupants, made a shambles. There would appear to be so little that is needful to make life in its simplest form joyous and beautiful, but man has succeeded in rendering his existence on earth a thing of such complexity that simple standards have been swept away, and we are living, 
and perhaps dying, in an age that has adopted an entirely false system of values. Maybe the war will bring a new and better standard of values. At any rate, we can be sure that in helping to defray its cost, many of us will be compelled to adopt a simpler way of life, which may be all to the good. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, 17th of May, 1940. In a few days, in May 1940, the world changed. Germany continued to invade Europe and the Allied forces to organize themselves to fight it. The worst of the war was already seen and still yet to come, and the people of Cornwall began to line up to do their part. Highest in county. They all had their chins up and they were in excellent spirits, said a Ministry of Labour official on Monday of the men who registered in the Falmouth area on Saturday for military service. They were men of the 27 age group, and he said that they included a great portion of married men, and at Falmouth particularly, a great number of men in reserved occupations. 195 men were registered at Falmouth, the highest in the country. There were two conscientious objectors. Total figures for the counter were 1,494. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 31st of May, 1940. In Cornwall, people from the Baptist Church, the Society of Friends, the Methodist Mission, the Royal Cornwall Home for Girls, Falmouth Teachers, Rotary Club, Boy Scouts, League of Nations, Cuthbert Fox, who was running the port at the time, the Major of Falmouth and many others had formed the Falmouth and District Committee for the Rescue of Children from Germany just a year earlier. Working in connection with the London Committee, they managed to bring over and locate children and young people, mostly Jewish, into the county. Memoirist Ingrid Jacobi was one of them, and on her book, My Darling Diary, a wartime journal, Vienna 1937-39, Falmouth 1939-44, she records her experience of being a child refugee in Falmouth. She writes of her love of pasties, of Swampool as her favorite beach, of a visit to the nuns in Tremont, of the life of a young woman learning English to proficiency. She falls in and out of love. She gains friends. She rides the hills on a bicycle she had to get permission from the police to use because she was an enemy alien. And she writes about her encounters with anti-Semitism. War Commandments don't grouse about wartime inconveniences. Think what our sailors, soldiers and seamen are putting up with. Don't get depressed. If you do, don't depress others. Don't believe rumours or spread them. Don't gossip about naval, military or air matters. Don't buy anything you can possibly do without. Don't waste food, paper, metal or rags. Here are a few do's. Store coal in summer, if space permits. Save all you can and invest in war savings certificates or in the post office savings bank. Finally, do keep smiling. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 31st of May, 1940. In the introduction of her memoirs, Ingrid Jacobi writes, and I quote, Human beings, and especially children, have an infinite capacity to adapt to their surroundings, and so my misery and homesickness were gradually overlaid 
by an enjoyment of new friends and, ultimately, even by a superficial feeling of belonging. After more than half a century, I look back on those five years in Fama as being among the happiest of my life. For this reason, I wanted to show my gratitude to the town which gave me refuge and do so now with this record of my time spent there." End quote. This record of her time in Falmouth is an incredible historical document. There's a lot we can learn from that. Maybe you'll sit and sigh Wishing that I were May 13th, as the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands is reaching a critical point, Churchill enters the focus of the international public sphere with his first and legendary speech before the House of Commons. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might, and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, What is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. But there were practical and demanding matters to resolve and organize. And the war cabinet was meeting frequently, multiple times a day, to sort out the different elements that make up a strategy of war. For war is not only weapons, propaganda, and ideas. War is not only troops, resources, and bonds. War is not only boundaries, laws, and agreements being crossed. War is what happens to people when they are othered. War is what happens when the othered are displaced and hurt. A scheme had been worked out in full detail to deal with refugees from Holland and Belgium, some 300,000 of whom were expected. Preliminary confidential warnings had been issued to the police, local authorities, etc., to be prepared to put the scheme into effect. There was no intention of inviting refugees to come to this country, and for this reason the warnings had been issued confidentially. The Ministry of Information were being asked to keep all references to this evacuation scheme out of the press. We must expect, however, that these ships coming from the Low Countries would be filled with refugees. The refugee scheme included arrangements for sorting out any skilled workmen for use in our industries as early as possible. Conclusions of a meeting of the War Cabinet held at 10 Downing Street SW1 on Friday, May 10th, 1940 at 11.30am. War Cabinet Minutes, 118.40. Across the Netherlands, thousands of people were fleeing. In the months before, on what is called the Phony War, the Allied forces had been standing by, or helping where they could, 
But during this week in May 1940, it became obvious that conflict was unavoidable. For Holland, the aid came too late. The Dutch forces were cut away from the Allied forces, and there was not enough time to organize support against the pressure of the invading army. On May 14, 1940, the Hausdicker family decides to escape by sea with a handful of friends, Jacks, Desi, and their son Edo, drove directly to the port at Ichmugen as the Nazi forces are gaining ground behind them. In her talk for the Contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco, Charlene von Seyer shared Desi's impressions of that trip in her diary, describing how, as they drove, they were forced to slow down for cars, bicycles, and ox carts, and everything else was moving with them in the direction of the sea. Pressed towards the water, there would be minute decisions to account for the difference between life or imprisonment, loss or freedom. As they reached the port, with expired visas they couldn't have renewed, they attempt to board the SS Bodegraven, a cargo ship. In a few short hours, overwhelmed by armed conflict, the Netherlands would surrender to Nazi Germany. How could the small Jewish family secure their escape? The name of Jack Hausdicker has led me on a years-long search for Falmouth in World War II. For a fast-changing town full of activity, in high contrast to the sleepy town of last year, it was interesting to discover and understand how Falmouth was so internationally connected all along. And this search left me with many questions. What do we know about the places where we live? Do we take their current rhythms for granted? Can we see the history that hides in plain sight? This fascinating story of Jack Hausticker and his family continues in part 2 of episode 12, the last episode of season 1 of On the Hill. We decided this story was too interesting and too important to fit in one episode. There was so much to tell. I hope you accompany us as we follow Jacks to Falmouth and find out more about what happened to his collection and his family. In the second part of this episode, we will hear more from Charlene, finish telling you the story of Jacks share the creative response to it, and our last interview with a writer, me, this season. Listen to part two now.